Welcome to the Anime Research Group, a show about the weird and wonderful mistake that is anime. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And this week, in our quest to watch all the shows we never had time for, we look at Sakura Quest, a show about revitalizing Japanese rural towns, chubacabras, and giving speeches. But before we get into the episode uh, proper, what have we been up to? We won't have had an episode now for one week due to my family circumstances, which I'm not going to say too much about. You've got no excuse for not having done anything. Well, I played a bunch of different video games since we last talked. Um, I think I mentioned Hades in Norium, but I've played like another 30 hours of it since then. And it's just a fantastic roguelike on every level. And the way it includes its story just shows that Supergiant Games is always willing to go another mile. Besides that, I've also tried the newest gacha game, Genshin Impact. I played it for about three hours, rolled for about 20 minutes, and then I deleted it because I was bored. It's very impressive for what's technically just a mobile gacha game, but it still doesn't have anything to capture my attention in the long run. On the other hand, Aegis Rim 13 Sentinels, now that's a game that I'm just dying to get back to, with its time travel mecha narrative and 13 playable protagonists. It's puzzle-like approach to story that I'm really hoping comes together to a satisfying conclusion, because if it does, this will be a game to remember. But I won't say too much on what's actually happens in the game, because it's definitely a game I would say that you should go out and play for yourself. Besides that, I've not really watched too much anime. I watched two more episodes of Aria, and I really liked episode six uh, with the third Undyne Athena. I think Alice is my favorite out of the, um, out of the young gondoliers. I just like her comedic expressions and uh, facial animations. I also think uh, I'm not the only one, but I watched a video on My Immortal because that's always interesting. And I just want to shout out the Ria Matsumoto Pokemon music video, which just beautiful and anime industry. Just hire Ria Matsumoto more. She knows what she's doing. She's good. You've covered like three of the things I would have said. Um, <laughs> but the thing that I've been trying to watch but I'm not really keeping up with is someone has been subbing Shinmai Shimai no Futari Goha, uh, which was probably my favorite cooking manga of the past little while. But it has a J-drama, which is really capturing a lot of what the manga is about. Although I don't remember it being quite this heavy on the sister shipping. Whatever, I'm in it for the food. How about you, Freya? Well, since apparently YouTube videos count is things <laughs> i've watched a bunch of youtube videos <laughs> including one about how the uh, cia might have helped uh australia remove its prime minister i also watched burn the witch on a whim oh yeah I, I watched that too what did you think of it i did not like it really why too much going on not enough uh, meat animation is very good though Judo Colorado have some good people working there. I sound like Trump. Studio Colorado has plenty of good animators. They have the best people, world class. No one does anime the way they do. Well, I think that mainly stems from the reason that the way Kubo, Tita Kubo, the author, is doing this manga is he's doing it in small sections of about 10 chapters each. And I think they'll just adapt that arc after it's done. And this is like the initial arc after the first teaser chapter. So he's really trying to get all of his world building out there right now. And 
set it up so it'll pay off later. But that was always one of the big problems of Bleach. Too much world building that wasn't coherently thought through. And then later on, built on meaningfully. I'm hoping, since he's taking so much time between each one of the sections, he'll have more. He'll have the ability to better work out a plan and make it come together more naturally. But I'll remain cautiously optimistic. Uh, like I, I personally enjoyed Burn the Witch quite a lot because I really like his strong character designs. And also the uh, the visuals of the anime, as you said, were really strong themselves. There's lo- lots of good animation, yes. Does he know how to write characters? Because in this, they were either flat or very mouthy or incredibly <laughs> annoying. Can you tell me what the point of Malgus is? I mean, I have no idea. The man- the, you, You're now caught up to the manga. So I don't know what, how much, where else this is going to go. Like, you're basically at the same point where everybody else is. So you can't, okay. No, and just judging from his history on Bleach, no, he's not really all that great at writing interesting characters. He's really great at, ex- like, setting up interesting premises, but he's not that great at actually making them pay off all that well Okay, so with our vocal cords sufficiently loosened up, let's talk about the show. Danny, Sacra Quest. The anime ran from April to September 2017 for a total of 25 episodes and was made by PA Works, which stands for Progressive Animation Works. It was part of their working series, following Hanasaku Iura and Shirobaku. The studio's output as a whole has been kind of mixed, making some very popular shows like Angel Beats or Shirobako, some fantastic shows that I love, like Eccentric Family, and some real trash like Charlotte. So they're like any studio. Yeah. Like the other two shows in this working series, Sakura Quest also features a group of five female protagonists trying to find their place in adult society and coming into contact with a job slash working environment that they are not that familiar with. Um, In this case, they are attempting to revitalize the declining fictional Japanese rural town of Manoyama. This fictional town is based on Inami uh, Fukumitsu and Johanna, along with five other towns which were merged to form the city of Nanto in 2004. And Nanto is actually the city where PA Works was founded and is based Thus, it has a very close relationship with said town. Uh, PA Works is one of the few anime studios that is not based in Tokyo or another major city. This fictional city of Manoyama was actually declared a sister city to the city of Nanto, with an official signing taking place. The mayor of Manoyama was actually played by one of the PA Works producers. There is a deep relationship between these two towns, the fictional and the real one, beyond just serving as an inspiration for it, but we'll explore that further later on in our central discussion on anime tourism. For now, I think it's time for Ian to tell us what actually happened in these three episodes. Okay. Episode one is off to Magical Manoyama, and it's about setting us up with our central conceit so that we can get on with the wacky slice of life hijinks. Or at least... That's what's happened so far in what we've watched. <laughs> it could it could all go up pear shit for all I know. Uh, at the beginning of the episode, uh, Yoshino Koharu, our main character, is job hunting, but she's getting rejected left and right. She doesn't really want to return to her home in the countryside. So when she gets a job offer from a modeling agency, she doesn't ask too many questions about it. Mm. They send her to Manoyama to participate in a town revival campaign as their spokeswoman slash queen. 
But when she gets there, it turns out that her new employers thought they'd hired someone else. And this leads to the first of many speeches in the show where she has to convince them that she'll do her best, even though she's not who they want. Uh, a coronation event takes place for her in the palace of the kingdom of Chupacabra. Thus, one of about a million times we will say the word Chupacabra today. <laughs> yes. And we get to hear the backstory of the kingdom, which is about a hero pulling a sacred sword from a stone. Uh, this will be important in a second. She enjoys herself at the coronation event and at the post-event party. And it's only when she gets back to the boarding house she's staying at that she learns the job is for a whole year rather than for a few days. Uh, of course, this was mentioned in her contract, but, well, she didn't really read it that closely. She tries to run away, but there's no buses or trains in the town uh, that are still going. So she has to return. And this is when two members of the uh, town's revitalization committee, if we like, Ushimatsu and Shiori, stage a farce where Yoshino would need to save Shiori from a chubacabra using the sword from the stone. But, I mean, this doesn't face her too much, and she whacks chubacabra Ushimatsu with her back. She can't go back to the boarding house because it's locked, so she spends her night in the palace instead. And it's there that she notices a photo of herself as the 100,000th guest, and she realizes that, that she remembers that event from her childhood, and this starts to get her thinking more fondly of the time. Uh, so with the conceit firmly established, on to episode two, The Gathering of the Five Champions. You can probably tell from Tyler this is going to be about the Collecting Our JRPG Party episode. And we need some sort of quest to bring them together. And that quest is that Yoshino has to sell boxes of Chupacabra Manju, uh, which are Japanese sweets. Uh, unfortunately, the committee has ordered 10 times as much as they thought. Classic. But on the plus side, if she sells out in a week, she gets to cut her contract short and go back to Tokyo. So we'll count Shiori as already in the party. And then the episode is just going to be follow the structure of try a new way of selling, get a new character, repeat. So the first person we have to collect is Mackie, who is posing as the manager of the boarding house, uh, but is not, in fact, the manager. Uh, when they try at the local sweet shop, Shiori introduces Yoshino to her friend Ruriko, uh, who fills in Yoshino with information about Chupacabra, and this is what convinces her to try an occult theme for their ad campaign. But for the ad campaign, they need a website. So we collect Sanai, who is the one who creates the website. And now their new tactic is to sell Manju outside of the palace, but to get people to come to them by using various website gimmicks. This doesn't go very well, and so they try instead to create a viral video. Uh, this is where Ririko finally joins the party by directing the scene where Yoshino has to kill a chubacabra and its blood turns into manju. <laughs> uh, in the end, they fail to sell all the manju, but they have fun doing so, and Yoshino says that she'll stay, at least for now. Uh, so we have episode three, The Cry of the Mandrake. In this episode, Yoshino is going to be representing the in a regional mascot contest. She gives an interview with local TV. She explains about her jobs and the town's revival efforts. But she comes to realize how little she actually knows about the town. Ushimatsu says that she won't learn anything by reading the reference prepared for her. She has to feel the town. So she goes around and talks with various people in the town. She learns things like the most of the locals don't really want the town to change. They get along fine without the tourists. And if all the children move away, well, that's the problem for the future. Uh, she also learns that the town had a previous mascot called the Cabaret Kid. The next day, they're at the contest. 
But dun dun dun, the head of the Chupacabra costume has gone missing. At the suggestion of Ririko's grandmother, our antagonist for the, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the gang decide to deliver the Cabra Kid costume to the contest for Yoshino and Ushimatsu to use. They arrive at the same time as the garbage-covered Chubacabra head does, and Yoshino is forced to choose between them. So she chooses both, and Ushimatsu wears a Chubacabra body and an onion head. We kind of end with a speech where Yoshino tells the contest crowd about what she has learned about the town, and she commits to spending the next year figuring out what is important to the people of Manuyama. Okay, so with our summaries out of the way, let's move on to Yoshino, then our central protagonists. What did we all think of her? I mean, she's kind of a ditz. <laughs> she doesn't read her contract. She spends all her money on fortune tellers. And just is you're a really earnest person. Like, she's, she's exactly the kind of person who you expect to be giving speeches in anime. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting that this anime... That this anime uses the oh she didn't read the you read the wrong thing you wrote the wrong thing at least three times within these first three episodes because she doesn't read the contract they wrote down the name of the wrong actress that's why they got her and they also made a mistyping mistake that got them a thousand manju boxes instead of the hundred they asked for. It's a really silly conceit uh, that they are definitely overusing, but. It's not something that's uncommon in these kind of sitcom shows. Like, well, yeah. we need something bad to happen. You wrote a nine instead of a six, and now everything has gone to shit because you have to have nine instead of six. <laughs> I mean, her central gimmick in these first three episodes is all about her dislike of small towns, which she originally comes from. It's the classical big city of dreams where everything is possible versus true small town happiness narratives. I mean, the, the show really doesn't turn out to be like that in the end, but oh well. It's all about how the town is dying. It doesn't feel like a like, oh, small town happiness type thing, even to her. Like her motivation is, okay, I'm going to save this place or I'm going to try to save it. I, I will say, though, that the underlying assumption of a lot of these things and city bias here but like it's not always clear that these places should necessarily be saved that's certainly a point well it's certainly a point in these first two episodes that she longs to go back to the big city even though she doesn't really know why it's because she's under the impression that the city is the place of possibility like when she's asked i think in episode one what these dreams and chances are she doesn't really have an answer to what the opportunities in tokyo are she just knows from stories and general consensuses that are created around these ideas of large cities that these are, this is where opportunities are supposed to exist. Yeah, she, she's kind of manipulable in that way, right? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, she's definitely the kind of person who I think would just end up being happy wherever they are, but she's got herself fixated on this thing being the right thing for her, and she doesn't realize that she'll probably just be happy wherever she is. Another thing that Ian really didn't mention all that much during the um, episode summaries is the idea of the queen, because she's not just there to revitalize the town, she is a literally elected queen as a publicity stunt, essentially. But we actually start the first episode with her dreaming and reminiscing that she's always wanted to be a queen rather than a princess. And I think that's quite interesting because it works well with the more adult dynamic that we have 
compared to a lot of other female starring anime where they're still in high school. There, it's very often they would like to be a princess, whereas here the adult, the more adult uh, Yoshino would like to be a queen. Well, a princess sort of implies a lack of responsibility, whereas being a queen implies rather a lot of responsibility. Yes. And thus, I think that works quite well with this more adult uh, cast. Though I was a bit disappointed that the memory you mentioned of her uh, having been to Manoyama as a child didn't really do anything visible to um, in this episode. Like, she just kind of sees it and is like, huh, I guess this is where my literally favorite memory of all of my childhood came from. Oh, well. I don't know if that comes up again later. No, but her attitude does immediately change over the next two to being to wanting to help more. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's the thing that really softens her. If she hadn't yes. realized that then one can imagine her getting up at like 6 a.m. the next day and taking the first train out. Is it kind of cliche? Yes. Does it work for the structure? Yes. I guess that's a that's a point in the show's favor than the approach that uh, plot point with enough subtlety that I wasn't actually sure whether it did anything. That's good. Yeah, Danny, clearly you're too stupid for the... No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you're too stupid for this slice of life show that doesn't really matter a lot of the... Uh, I just don't understand. She works well as a protagonist for this show because she is the, as written, the energetic type who wants to help people because she is literally going up against something that she cannot possibly fix. Uh, Mm. The degradation of a town following uh, uh, Japan's economic uh, explosion in the 90s. But you know what? She's going to try really hard and that's what the whole point of her speech in the third episode is. She's Um, got the spirit and she'll do it. With enough gumption, you can do anything. Except she really won't, and that's the good part. Of the, the good immediate counterpoint to the speech is that it doesn't uh, it doesn't win the contest that they're a part of. Mm-hmm. That is something I actually really appreciated during these first three episodes: the show's willingness to let the characters fail in what they were trying to do within the episodes, rather than giving them an immediate success at the end of each episode or some form of accomplishment, because they really fail to do anything. They fail to sell the manju. They fail to win the contest, and in episode one, they kind of fail to gather interest in the town with this new election of the queen. They even bolster the numbers in the article that gets published saying, oh, 1,500 people attended this this um, coronation when it really was more like 30 people. And they're all old people. There wasn't a single young people at that coronation. It, it works pretty well for the theme, right? Like the whole mm-hmm. story is about like um, how these places are... Um, degrading away and people constantly trying um weird plans to like stop that instead of uh <laughs> well either letting it happen or doing something or actually investing in it properly yeah but, you know yeah. i really liked the um the bit where she went on the tour um asking people about the town just because of um I don't think this is how Ian described it, but their uh, their attitude is just sort of resigned. Well, this is what's going to happen. It sucks, but what can you do? Because they're all old, and that's what old people are often like. But they've, and they've been stuck with this for 20 years, so, you know. It's not like they're living bad lives. It's just their lives, the city isn't growing, and that's not really affecting them directly. No, but they can tell it's happening. Mm-hmm. Like there are less, there are way less kids around than there used to be, and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, general problems in Japan. But there are people uh, like 
actively are resisting the change in tone uh, as yes. opposed to just being resigned. It's you're trying to change this town, therefore you're bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ruriko's grandmother is like that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That that's really what it is. Like she, uh, Yoshino realizes that the town doesn't really care about the mascot, uh, either Chupacabra or Cabra Kid in the third episode, and that's what her big speech is about. Because it's a gimmick. It's not something that's actively going to help the town get better. It's just something that some people who got it into their heads that they need to save the town thought they could utilize. Right, because I, I, I think I get why people in like the town don't really like um, Ushimatsu, like the, the previous king, because mm. his approach is very much that of a snake oil salesman. It's the, oh, well, if we just paint the town pink and sell balloons, <laughs> then everyone's going to want to come here and our town will be saved. Just so we can wrap up um, uh, Yoshino, um, I'm going to just mention that she is voiced by Ayaka Nanase, who... I was I was scrolling through her her CV I guess, and the thing that kind of stuck out to me was just how often she had been the child version of a male man. Like she was young Kazuma Asoma in Fruit Basket, young Bruno Granzreich in the Royal Tutor, young Guy Ogata and Sword Guy. It's just kind of weird when you when that sort of a thing happens. She definitely captures the Genki spirit here, though. Yes. But I think one of the things that I really noticed about the voice work and all is that I could have predicted the voices from the character design. <laughs> yes. Uh, in a way that I really shouldn't be able to do. Like, oh yeah, Yoshino's the Genki girl. And Ririko is going to be like the person who talks really quiet. And uh, like, if we can move on to talk about Jory now, she's softly spoken, she takes care of you. And Yes. Uh, at least in these episodes. Because she's like, she's constantly helping other people do stupid shit, it feels like. I mean, there's really, we really don't get to see anything from her character beyond that she loves this town, that she's nice, and that she's friends with Ririko. And that's essentially everything we have on her so far. Too willing to help if she met her, but you know, whatever. Like that, I actually think that's interesting. Because, like, is it just like that she's just so kind that she is the kind of person who would um, just help a crazy old man? Or do we think that, like, her care is extending to the entire town? I think it's that, and she does genuinely believe in trying to improve it, although back to the wrong horse in that. Uh, that's a terrible way to say it. She's, uh... she's back to the wrong old man. She's back the wrong old man to do it. That, and I also think she just she works at the tourism uh, office, so yes. she kind of has to follow his orders because he's her boss. Yes. And I really hope there's an episode later on where he just gets on her nerves so much that she kind of blows up. Well, yeah, but her family has like a farm as well. She could have become yeah. like a, a milkmaid or something. <laughs> I don't know. Why did you go to milkmaid first? <laughs> they don't even have cows. Um, I mean, this is this is where her love for the town is just shown again. She loves the town, so she wants it to be alive, so she works for the tourism office. That just seems like a logical conclusion she might draw. Yeah. She gets two episodes later about it. I mean, I, I assume every one of the five characters gets a bunch of episodes dedicated to them because that's how these kinds of shows work. That's how Shirobako worked, and I have no doubt that's how Hanasako Iroi uh, worked. Shirobako was uh, integrated it better. 
But when with um, this character, they uh, picked um, Reina Ueda to voice her. She's got a decent amount of experience playing these sorts of airy kind. Of, like, um, so in Bakuon, she's Hane Sakura, who's our protagonist. I guess, like, to mention Keon, she's kind of the Yui in Keon. <laughs> so she's been both sisters. I mean, she, she doesn't voice Yui from uh, from Keon. I should just mention that. Uh, but she's uh, Mallow in Pokemon. And for and for a contrast, she's uh, Akane in Gridman. Which is a very different performance. So yeah, as you may have noticed, we don't really have that much to say about Shiori, but the same thing is kind of true for the other three characters. We just don't have enough time to fully explore a cast of five characters in these first three episodes. Like, we have uh, Sanai Kozuki, who is the person the group recruits to make their website. She's a programmer who escaped to the countryside, and she runs a blog about country life, uh, about the country life. But I think that's just a character and not real, because when we meet her, she seems like a shut-in. Like, it's framed that she's locked inside with no light coming in, it's dark, and empty ramen cups and trash bags everywhere. And she's, like, typing on a computer and saying, oh, it's so bright and beautiful outside, so I think she's just faking this blog. Though, immediately after that, she doesn't really seem like a shut-in at all, because she just gets, uh, she gets in her usual outfit, and she looks like the competent businesswoman design, and then she kind of sticks with that for the next three episodes. It's it's work mode versus home mode, right? Mm-hmm. Like her reasons for coming to the country are like rooted in the fact that she kind of felt like she didn't matter in the city, that she could just be replaced anywhere. And she kind of says that I was like, well, if I give like I to be to do what I do, I don't need to be anywhere in particular. So you might as well be somewhere where I guess it makes you feel a little bit special. So she was thinking about moving back to Tokyo because she hadn't talked to anybody in Manoyama. So it was good that uh, Yoshino came along and broke into her house with the power of the tourism bureau. To save her from a centipede. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, please, tourist bureau officers, do not break into my house. I will not like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a centipede uh, mm-hmm. when somebody's getting scared of a bug. Or a cockroach. Well, in anime, it's always a centipede. Probably because Japan has giant centipedes that... Uh, like to crawl into people's houses. I mean, I would be scared of a giant centipede. Uh, probably the same, even though I think they're really cool. Uh, yeah, so Tanai Kozuki is played by Mikako Komatsu. She's been in some PA works shows before. And since we talked about Precure just a few episodes back, uh, she was in the, not the most recent, but the previous one, uh, Star Twinkle Precure, as Kyrsali. Like, Frey assures me that Maki's uh, character arc comes after uh, Sanai's. But as far as we can tell right now, she's just someone who's had a lot of jobs uh, and is like returned to the country after it for Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of semi-aloof. Well, I guess I'll go along and help you guys. That, that's what she does. She's the famous Odin detective, but who's really only famous in the town of Manoyama. And I, I am a bit worried that this whole... Oh, she's just good at a thing because she worked at it. She did it at a job a while ago. Becomes like an excuse for the show that any problem they might encounter, Maki will just go, "Oh well, I know how to do this because I worked on that a while ago." I, I we need to, we need to break into this computer system. Ah, fortunately, I worked hacker for the <laughs> Russian. Uh, 
No, I, I don't think that's a problem, and it definitely isn't a problem later. Also, it's just a factor of being a, uh, a working-class millennial as you tend to pick up skills from doing a bunch of different jobs, if you manage to get the jobs. Mm-hmm. I say as a non-working-class millennial. The show also sets up an obvious future plotline for her with a brother and a mother who ask her to come back to Tokyo and her refusing. Like That'll obviously go somewhere, but once again, she doesn't really have that much space to breathe in these three episodes. Right, I think in the long run, she's the contrast character. Like she wants the opposite of Yoshino. I mean, she wants to. She doesn't. Also, doesn't want to go to her house. But other than that, mm-hmm. she's returned willingly to a small town. She helps, but she isn't too pushy about it. She's the most obvious kind of character I think to include in this kind of show. Is just like let's just put the person who is. The the Lancer, if you will. <laughs> I will mention uh, Mackie's uh, voice actor, Chica Anson. She actually is kind of the one whose shows I think I've watched the most out of, at least that like, stand out, because I was like, okay, she's Chisa in Grand Blue, she's Reina in Hibiki, she's Himi in Kakashi Goto's. It was, it, was it was very easy to pick out roles that I thought people would recognize her. And that just leaves us with the final of our five characters, which is Ruriko Oribe. Once again, we really don't know much about her beyond she's the kind of Kudere one who's, fa- who's a childhood friend of Shiori. She's fascinated by the paranormal. And her grandmother has a massive rivalry with uh, Ushimatsu, the head of the tourism board. And that's kind of it. I don't know if her grandfather is alive because if he's dead, it's like the grandmother and Ushimatsu, could, you could definitely see them hooking up together once they get, <laughs> over, once they get over their hatred. <laughs> Uh, but that's kind of her role thus far, right? It, that she has her foot in two camps. Um, she is the bridge between team keep things the way they are and team let's fuck shit up. <laughs> <laughs> they picked her relatively inexperienced voice actor with Chiemi Tanaka. If we exclude all the roles which are like boy or maid, <laughs> then there's only two other real roles. One is in the Love Live Nijigasaki High School, which is airing just now in October 2020. Okay, so we've like spent, I think, way too much time talking about some of these characters. Mm. But I mentioned earlier, Danny, is that this is the third in the working series from PAA Works, and that they've follow that they seem to follow a pattern uh, or formula uh, with five characters uh, and so on and so forth. Like, yes. So how do these match the character archetypes that we would see in, say, Shirobako? Um, well, I I don't actually know that they match the character archetypes uh, from Shirobako that clearly, closely. I can't speak about Hanasaka Iroha, but I think the central difference in, in, in between the two shows is that in Shirobako, which is about working in the Anna industry, they all very much know what they want and they know a lot about the industry, though they're still learning and growing. Really, there is a real desire there to get into this industry, whereas here, it's less of a desire and more of a necessity, and, oh, I guess we'll do this if we have to, at least in these three episodes. I think, Freya, you've seen both shows to completion, so you can probably better uh, give us a better oversight here. Uh, well, I mean, for a start, outside of the main character, the other four don't really have any similarities with the other four in Shirobako. In in Sack Request, the other four get about an even amount of focus, 
by the end, whereas in Shirabako, it's really Miyamori and I've forgotten the animator's name, Emma, I think, and mm-hmm. the uh, the budding voice actress who get any focus, and the other two uh, there, I guess. They show up, th- for a start, they show up way later. So that's quite different. Uh, I've also not seen Hanasaka Iroha. Also, just it's it's structured very differently because yes. um, Sakura Quest does this thing that, well, Ian's seen a little bit of, where the sort of middle section is devoted to these two episode arcs focusing on someone, whereas Shirobaku is just continual episodes about creating the two um, shows they end up making. It's one of them a movie. No, that's in the movie. I don't really think there is a formula. <laughs> Okay, yeah, because from what I'm hearing, it definitely sounds like in Shirobako, like because it, it's it's structured around the creation of a particular product, that's what drives the progress. Whereas in here, they've got a bit more flexibility to be more like a, I guess like a classic cute girls do cute things show. I mean, I don't, I don't think it matches that uh, that uh, archetype either. Hmm. I would be curious to see whether we're going to get another entry in this working uh, series, because the first one was in 2011 with Hanasaku. Then we had three years break till Shirobako in 2015. Uh, four years break, sorry. Then another two years for Sakura Quest. And since then, we've not had another series that fits into that collection. They made a Shirobako movie. So oh, yes, they did. You're right. I suspect they'll, if they do anything, they'll make more Shirobako. Mm. Yeah, it it did seem to have uh, some sort of like staying power to it. Like I, I so rarely hear anyone mention Yurosaku Iroha by comparison. Yes, but they do all have the magical number five for protagonists, which I'm wondering whether that's a leftover from the number of people you need to form a club in high school because it's always five people. Like I, th- I think you might have a point there because when I think stereotypical cute girl slice of life three or four tends to be the more common uh except for as you mentioned ones that are centered around clubs um for precisely this reason but even then they tend to like only focus on a smaller subset of that and like one person is just a member yeah because we're talking about uh cute girls doing cute things uh, i guess um I think this fits more into slice of life in the classical sense, where it's literally slice of life, uh, more than the like Nichijoke, which is apparently what they call uh, cute girls doing cute things um, in Japan. Because if you think about it, Girls in Panzer has five main protagonists, Eurocamp, five main protagonists, uh, Sir Nobuto, I think there's five there. Uh, Stella Girls Academy also has five. Yes, although these things all put very different levels of focus on the uh, on on the five. And Girls and Panzer is really mostly about uh, Miho. I think what you're saying uh, about it being like a more traditional slice of life, um, it like has has something to it because I almost prefer to describe this as a sitcom. Yeah, than a, a slice of life. Except there is kind of an ongoing story, but I definitely feel it's more sitcommy than like I don't know where I'm drawing the line between slice of life and sitcom, but I, I like it's definitely not Nichi Joke, which is a much more useful term than cute girls doing cute things. It, it is, but uh, the Western fan didn't. Yes, well, I'm introducing it now. Use the phrase. 
for this podcast that no one listens to. Unless you're listening to it, then thank you. I'm talking to you right now. I think I think we're just wrapping up our general talking about the majority of these episodes. So does anybody have any last things they'd say be, want to say about the episodes before we move on to animation? How do we feel like the comedy went, given that this uh, we're sort of semi-describing this as a sitcom? I'm mostly on it. There was one joke I really liked uh, in episode two where they're trying to sell the manju and they're having a discussion on how to make their sales more appealing and it ends with Yoshino getting put in fake jail. Like the next day we cut to her holding up like bars out of cardboard and like signs pointing to her saying bad queen and stuff. And I thought that was just a really fun discussion that went out of control then leading to a punchline, kind of reminiscent to how we sometimes get really off track when we talk about stuff. And I really like that joke. But other than that, nothing else really landed or was that impactful. Uh, I uh, like, yeah, I was getting like, the, I thought you, the one you're actually going to talk about was the one when they were trying to describe her, uh, like uh, in her level of attractiveness. And it then ended up with like a parenthetical about like subject to personal opinions. But yeah, I think overall it's very safe uh, i would hesitate to call it like sunday morning cartoon strip uh level of safe but it's it's not that much i liked a lot of the like little incidental uh conversational humor they had Mm-mm. the comedy comes more from the characters playing off each other in small moments rather than the yeah. big punchline jokes they try to set up like in episode one we have the bit where she has to s- fake save shiori from from uh, Ushimatsu, who's dressed up in the Chupacabra costume. And that's supposed to be like a big joke that she knows that it's not real, so she punches him. But that doesn't really work all that well, whereas this discussion that me and Ian have mentioned where they talk about how to improve uh, their sales and they talk about her uh, level of attractiveness or her being a bad queen, that was just them like fast talking and that worked really well, on the other hand. Yeah, it's like when I think of like a good comedy in anime, I often think of like Kamea Koji and like in particular Joshi Raku. And Joshi Raku is just that the entire time. <laughs> and like that's what I want. I, I just I just I just yeah. want people to just chat and see where it goes, which obviously involves like very a very difficult writing task, but I definitely feel it it works better in the long run than uh the sort of more slapsticky visual gags and the cliched oh well i added an extra zero mm-hmm. yeah agreed and i think we all agree and i think they focus more on that later on although i, I think it gets less comedic as it goes on all right on to the animation we go then so since we've been talking about comedy uh, our director has a little bit of experience uh doing that sort of show i guess uh though they're senses of humor are quite different. Our director is Soichi Masui, who, just to list a few things, uh, Chaika the Coffin Princess was, I think, popular. More notable to me is he directed two of the Shin-chan films. And that's a very different uh, comedic sensibility. And uh, a couple of years ago, he directed the very popular at the time, though, of course, everybody stopped talking about it. Since then, uh, Rascal does not dream about whatever the rest of the title is. Um, Bonnie Girl Senpai, I think. Thank you. Uh, which I didn't like the first episode, so I didn't watch the rest. Also important is the series composer, 
where we have Masahiro Yokotani, just more comedy again. Devil is a part-timer, Sergeant Frog, and <laughs> in terms of famous things, uh, Free. <laughs> Truly a good work. Yes, and <sighs> everybody's favorite popular thing, ReZero, which none of us care about. Nope. <laughs> so uh, how do we feel about this show visually? I was mostly eh on it. But compared to the visual feast we have of knowing last time, it just fell flat. And that's the way I think I described this show. It was flat, safe, but flat. There was no interesting dynamic camera or interesting angles. Its real strength mostly comes from the way it was storyboarded. It does a good job at cutting at the right moments to make its comedy work in time with the music. But... There was just nothing all that interesting that made me go, oh man, I'm so glad this show was animated because they couldn't have done that in live action just as well. Yeah, though I don't think that's uh, necessarily a problem. No, no, like it wasn't It wasn't a bad show by any means. It just wasn't very visually interesting. Something that's interesting is that uh, there's no defamation or typification uh, in this show, which I guess is fairly common these days. Um, I would say outside of like children's shows, I think people are kind of off of it in a way that we were way into it in the late 90s. I still yeah. feel like comedy shows especially really benefit from it because you can just do more with visual expressions if you chibify or really deform them rather than having than being limited by the moe cute girls realistic quotation marks hard quotation marks uh style where everything is fairly on model and at most we get like a big open mouth and a shocked expression and sound effects but no real like change in um in visual expression i want my sweat mark that is visually apparent on the (laughs) give it back to me i will say though that the um i mean this show is supposed to be fairly grounded so Obviously, they didn't want to go for that. And I do think that the character designs work fairly well for, like, because they're supposed to be on model the whole time. Um, they still have quite a, a decent variety of facial expressions, even if they're not going all in on the, like, uh, deformed or the <laughs> Satojin uh, silly faces. Mm-hmm. I mean, as, as I said earlier, um, the character designs do a lot to set up my expectations purely through meta knowledge about how anime works <laughs> yeah in a way that is like kind of comforting but also a little eh. <laughs> uh because like, like i all, i talked about in the context of the voices but like it, it was it's also the character designs implied certain things about their character mm-hmm. and like it's fine it just means i watch too much anime <laughs> <laughs> i mean they're they're using it as visual shorthand and they've used it okay it wasn't like uh it didn't feel too rote. Mm, yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't like when they had like the class president in Shakuga no Shina, who I swear was the class president in at least three anime. <laughs> uh, one problem I have is that the backgrounds are... I don't know what the right word is, but they're like either too drab or too flat to really convey the, to convey the like fading of everything. Um, of the of the town, um, though they are very accurate to real locations, and 
in the description of this, there will be a bunch of links of somebody compiling uh, the real places that they've um, used as references. But yeah, I think I think the, the animation in this show is just fine. You know, when we, we when we say fine, we always it always sounds like that's a negative thing in the same way that a 50 out of 100 in video games score is a terrible score when it really should be an average score. And that only an 8 out of 10 is a decent score. But fine means the show is good. It's fine. It's solid. Yeah, enough about animation. Let's move on to the music and the opening and endings then. Freya? Yeah, so all the music in this show, including the openings and the endings, is produced by a band called uh, No Name. That's brackets K, uh, and then an underscore between it. Uh, they're interesting. They're a music uh, that will let, they're a music group specializing in any songs and doing soundtracks. Uh, so the other uh, soundtracks they've done are for Fairy Gone, which is a show that exists, and um, Dorahedro. And they, they pretty much always, I think, do the openings and endings uh, along with the soundtrack. Uh, Dorahedro has six endings. Yeah, they've, they've got a very varied musical palette, like a lot of composers. But uh, Dorahedro, for example, just has a lot of, it's got a mix of like industrial music and uh, along with, I want to say thrash metal, but that's not correct. Um, <laughs> some type of metal. Uh, like grinding guitars, uh, some more like ambient DM stuff, and also some circus music. Um, it's nothing like the soundtrack of this show, so I'm going to give them a thumbs up for having good range. This show also does a good job with its range, though I have to say, because we get a lot of the because we get a lot of the comedic guitar tracks, but we also get tracks like in the interview scene in episode one that sound very detective-y and I actually went back to listen to that like it could have fit in uh, Ace Attorney or Gunpoint really well and the music in this show is very well matched to the editing like it always plays at the exact right moment to underline a comedic beat so I'm going to give him a thumbs up on that from the proper mixing there but other than that I don't really have that much to say about it like it was funny, like that you specifically mentioned the the like editing the the music timing, uh, because that's kind of um, the thing that stood out to me in the ending, uh, Frisia. This the fact that they do this will make a little bit more sense when I talk about the opening. So the the visuals they chose for the ending are designed to sort of evoke an end of day feel. The anime is over. It's time to go to bed, <laughs> and it feels like kind of almost melancholic. And it, this works well with the town scenes in them. Um, they also have all the characters alone, and the reason I call it the uh, the editing is because they're actually lip-syncing along to the ending, which is a rare thing to do, I think. The lyrics are also just about being thankful for another person being there, uh, which is like kind of nice, because like while they're separate, at one point you have them all in like five split together, and so that's them like coming together and, yeah. and being friends. Though I, I do like how the uh, it's like um, placed so that none of them are looking at each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the way that, I mean, it, it, when you say a song that's like being thankful, you usually would think about it being like, I wouldn't even say upbeat, but the, the way they went for this was a very melancholic, they have a very, it's, it's went for the ambient music with like very sparse instrumentation. Like, I think you can probably pay attention to like every single 
uh, note that is being played if you try hard enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this contrasts uh, very much with the opening, uh, which is Morning Glory, because this is this is the much more upbeat one. It's uh, it falls into my op archetype of the day in the life opening, uh, where it takes you through a stereotypical day for uh, Yoshino, where she gets up, she has a breakfast at the cafe, they go to work, she gets overworked, she has to run around like a crazy person and then back at home to tidy. Yeah, it contains a lot of energy, certainly. The protagonist is always moving. She's rarely stopping, except when she sits down to take a break. And even then, the work piled up immediately. <laughs> like it, it, for me, it had a. It reminded me of Shiny Days from Eurocab, one of my favorite openings, but it never really hits those high notes in the same way. It just keeps building, but never really pays off all that well for me. That's uh, that's notes in the general sense, not the musical sense. Yes. Yeah, I kind of see what you're getting right at the start when we see the uh, the the name of the anime coming up, but I didn't quite feel it after that, but eh, it's just me. Like, and so, yeah, like the the contrast between the morning and the evening and the very different styles they took with this uh, worked really well. And with that, I think we can move on to our larger discussion topic. And I think, as we've mentioned once or twice, this week we'll be talking about anime tourism. So what does anime tourism mean specifically, if you don't know? It means people traveling to the real-life locations that they see in anime, or the locations that have inspired the settings of their favorite anime in, like, more, in a more fantastic sense. These journeys are also often called pilgrimages. The Japanese term is Seichi Jinrei, which is pilgrimage to a sacred site. But I guess the pilgrimage is in like a non-religious sense uh, here. Mm-hmm. These pilgrimages often result in the featured areas gaining a surge of visitors and turning them to profit through some clever marketing and uh, integration. Though, like we've mentioned before with Uchimatsu, it's not really a long-term viable solution. It's more of the snake salesman, get-rich-quick scheme, make a quick buck. Because as the anime's popularity and public visibility inevitably fades, so will the influx of New Pilgrim, with the exception of hardcore and diehard fans. We'll talk more about that in a second when we go to our specific example. So I, th- I think for a lot of people, uh, they first became aware of this with the uh, anime Your Name in 2016. Although, I, as far as I'm concerned, Haruhi is always the prime example of this. Uh, I don't know about the rest of you. Um, I personally first, I think, became aware of it, not through any specific anime myself, but through talking about it with you. I think we talk, we're talking about Lucky Star and you mentioned it. But I did realize that it's essentially just, it's the same thing as cinema tourism. Like when I went to New Zealand, I visited all the Hobbiton sets, took some tours, uh, saw some of the filming locations, and this is kind of the same thing. Yeah. Uh, they even produced a like, specific road atlas with all the um, Lord of the Rings filming locations on it, which kind of pisses me off, but uh, oh well. <laughs> This influx of anime fans can be a good thing for these cities. Like, some of them use this popularity to call for aid from anime fans. For example, uh, the city of Chichibu uh, in Saitama used fans to clean its local bridges because it was heavily featured in the popular show Anohana. 
And they also offered hiking courses based on locations from Anohana. However, these hiking courses only ran for a while, uh, probably to account for the fact that tourism is is seasonal, and thus most jobs created by it are temporary. This even more so for anime tourism, where it's not just the season, the season of the year, but also the season of the anime. The, it's simply too much of a niche thing for hiking rallies or stamp rallies or matchmaking tours to to remain profitable. For Anohana in the year 2011, when it was airing, it attracted about uh, 80,000 fans and generated about 320 million yens in profit. But I would be very curious to know how much of this, how much money Anohana would generate today for these kinds of cities. I mean, this is the problem with uh, any kind of tourism or relying on tourism <laughs> to um, shore up your economy is that it's very seasonal. And as you said, the jobs that get created are temporary. What you really want is to attract people to live there well permanently, I guess. But it doesn't seem like that's happened. Or it's very it's very difficult to find anything that's on whether that's happened or not. Yeah, I doubt anime tourism really convinces anybody to live there permanently. Probably not, though. Because it's more of a, oh, cool, I saw this on TV, I'll go visit it, but that wouldn't really be enough to convince you to live there. Unless it's like an anime that's specifically about one real town and was exclusively dedicated to showing off all the things and trying to convince people that, oh, these are all the great things you can only get here, thus you should move here. I don't really see something like Sakura Quest getting people to move to Nanto. No, but they um, they did use it to like organize an uh, event to help them preserve the local uh, pond, which actually shows up in the show at some point. I didn't realize Sakura Quest is popular enough to do that, but there you go. VA Works has a bit of a history of this because they have invested quite heavily in the uh, local in local ceremonies and things like that, to the point where they've made anime that you can only watch in Nanto, which is a bit confusing. Yeah, I think you need to go to specific locations to view these shorts. Yeah. Uh, like, I, I, I hesitate to push us way off track, but this reminds me of uh, when I got you both to watch that episode of, uh, of, of uh, Agriculture Angel Baraki. <laughs> yes. Which was, the, which was the anime to advertise Ibaraki Prefecture, where she's a magical girl, I guess. That's a topic we'll explore another time. It's just Japan and its love for mascots and how everything has a mascot. But I want to go back to more specifically about anime pilgrimages because I read a whole bunch of academic papers on it and I just want to tell you some of the interesting stuff I learned, the interesting things I learned in there. So in his paper on anime pilgrimages, Takeshi Okamoto divides them into three primary groups. We have the pioneers who locate the places seen in the anime through detective works. Presumably they cross-references pictures of the anime with Google Maps and other such things. In the parlance, it would be uh, Butai Tanbo for scene hunting. A second group who then sees this information goes out to these places and confirms that these are actually the locations the pioneers have pointed them to. And the third most general group of pilgrims, which are the fans who learn about these locations and then flock to them. Okamoto also heavily references the famous uh, Azuma Hiroki paper, Otaku, Japan's Database Animal, which I know Ian and me have been meaning to read, and we will eventually do so. Okamoto further notes that there are six types of behavior that are exhibited by anime tourists, though these are, of course, not definitive. 
or even need to be present. They are simply an observed commonality. One, these pilgrims recreate anime shots whenever possible. Two, they leave behind mementos of their journeys at these locations, such as fan art, anime goods, or other things. Three, they heavily document their journey and post about it online. Four, their cars are sometimes decorated with anime stickers, though I highly suspect that's a more niche thing. Fifth, cosplay. Fairly self-evident. And sixth, there's a large amount of interaction between these pilgrims and the local host. Yeah, it was funny because um, while some of these were like obvious to me because I'd seen them before, I didn't realize how much time people had spent wanting to recreate the the shots of particular things. Really? I, I just it just didn't it didn't occur to me. But I was reading uh, an article with like two Chinese people who went for their honeymoon to go and see the Kamakura High School from Slam Dunk. And then they were like compla- complaining about how they couldn't like take their selfie of like <laughs> doing the pose because there were too many people there. Because I think that's the one that extends most to outside Japan. Because I swear I see tons of people who like go on holiday to Japan and then go to a specific like the stairs in uh, your name, for example, and then take a picture there. And some people even do the silly thing of editing the characters into the real place. The most famous example of this of anime tourism is probably uh, Washinomiya Shrine in Kuki Saitama, which which really became a mecca for otaku after making an appearance in the first episode of Lucky Star. Watch Lucky Star. Or and then go to Washinomiya Shrine again. <laughs> <laughs> the studies of this event generally conclude that these new visitors were quite welcome by the locals because they actually made a bunch of anime stuff for free in collaboration with them that then further attracted more visitors. Though these interactions aren't always positive. Uh, For example, Higurashi, which is said in the town of uh, Shirakawa, uh, also caused a lot of anime fans to go there, but the citizens weren't very happy about it because they felt that these fans and the anime was promoting the wrong kind of image for their town. You don't want people coming to your town and then recreating, bashing someone's skull in with a <laughs> Or at the high school from Harahi, which Ian mentioned, there's been a lot of trespassing there of fans who are trying to see the, either see the place or recreate scenes from Harry and thus had to be removed by the police. Uh. Yeah, like, I mean, like some people just ruin it for everyone. And mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who ruin it for everyone. Like with Lucky Star, the interesting thing is there it has actually translated to some kind of long-term relationship between the town and these characters. Because even today in 2020, there's still a lot of merchandise there. The town recently um, revealed like a new pothole for an anniversary that featured the characters and marriage licenses that featured them. The characters from the show were actually designated as special residents of the town with like a massive event being held where the voice actors and the mayor of the town was present. Look, 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 Danny, if corporations can be people, then anime characters should get to be people too. (laughs) Of course, this is also um, made even more explicit in some places, like there's the Ghibli Museum. And of course, Akihabara is plenty of uh, this sort of shit. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. Like I've kind of I kind of get the appeal of scene hunting, uh, to be honest. Although yeah. I'm not much of a traveler. Like um, when we were all watching Highlander recently, and then we all and then we just started talking about how the castle was in everything. <laughs> I've been to that castle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
or um like i've been to the beach from civic private ryan yeah I, I, I did not recreate being shot at <laughs> and i guess i guess both me and denny have been to a bunch of lord of the rings filby locations yeah yeah like i went to hobbiton i went to the scene where we do where Gollum eats the fish which has an actual maori name that we should say but i can't remember what it is yep yeah, um, I guess I should also like mention like the the one school that when we watched Blazing Transfer Students, I asserted <laughs> to Denny that I had seen this school before and I spent time hunting down where I had seen it before. A lot of schools are based on real schools, but then obviously they give them a different name. Uh... Well, I mean, this was a live action, but then I'd seen it okay. and I was like, I know, I know I've seen this school before. And sure enough, it, they used it as a police station in one of the Gaki no Tsukai specials. And I was like, yes, I am a nerd. Uh, so when we think about this overall, we've talked about anime tourism as something that attracts a lot of people to a spot for a short amount of time. How do we really translate that to what Sakura Quest is doing with trying to revitalize a town in the long term? Like you've mentioned that the popularity of Sakura Quest allowed them to gather a bunch of people to clean a lake. But how do you think this anime and its popularity and its messages could be useful in uh, for, these, for the town of Nanto long-term? I would say we should ask the Pokemon company, but I don't really think they capitalized on Pokemon Go as well as they could have, uh, which felt like kind of the same phenomenon uh, where everything was a Pokestop for a while. <laughs> Well, as I said, PA Works already does quite a lot of stuff in uh, its local community in Nanto. So, for example, uh, I think in episodes four and five, there's a, a woodcarver um, shop that's yeah. featured, and there is an actual uh, woodcarving place in Nanto that they use to make merchandise or uh, one-off things for their shows. And they're at least dedicated enough to this that when they made the uh, Nendroid of um, <laughs> the main character, the Nendroids are normally made in China because, you know, they actually uh, had it made in the, or all of the copies of it made in uh, Totori in Japan. So hmm. there you go. PA Works is interesting as a company for their uh, level of dedication to these things. But not every town can be so lucky as to have P-Works. <laughs> to have an anime studio based well, yeah. there, yes. There's two problems. One is that it's not always obvious which works are going to do this. I mean, a lot of people have tried to capitalize on this by like specifically pointing out that, oh, we're in such and such a thing, we're in such and such a thing. Um, but even then, you're kind of at the mercy of, does it have the right kind of fan base to travel there? And you mm. can't really plan for this. Well, I will say for the apparently for the um Bonbori Festival, which uh takes place in Kanazawa Prefecture, which is where Hanasaku Iroho is set, that was a, a fictional invention, but is now celebrated yearly by the locals. Huh. Um, but they haven't really encouraged any um they apparently haven't really encouraged um fans specifically to go and uh, take part in it. So instead, they've just sort of created a local event, which to me seems like a much better way of doing things uh, instead of focusing on getting, oh, yeah, guys, go to this one place at this time. Um, like I said, it, investment is much better than um, these one-off big crazy uh, influxes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the one thing that we definitely wouldn't want to see is 
say, Ibaraki Prefecture <laughs> commissioning an anime suggesting <laughs> people go to certain places in Ibaraki in the vain <laughs> hope that it works, because that doesn't work. Uh, this is the other thing. These days we tend to get anime that are produced explicitly for this purpose of ad- for the purpose of advertising the uh, of a place like in Gochiman, Usagiwa, whatever its name is. Uh, I don't even remember where that's uh, advertising. Or the one a few years ago that was um, was about living in Nagoya, which is interesting because apparently everyone in Japan really hates Nagoya. Um, <laughs> the problem still remains that these are minor, minor patchworks that will result in momentary blips of popularity within the public consciousness. Like, if you make an anime about a prefecture, sure, it might gain more popularity for a while and it might get some... Uh, tourists to visit you and look at the locations, but I don't think anime tourism can in any way meaningfully sustain the revitalization of a town unless you really had like a long-running permanent show. Uh, like if Sazae-san was really is set in one specific town in Japan, then I feel like they could capitalize on that to promote it. But if your show only has 24 episodes, you just don't have enough time or space unless you make the best show of all time. So I think the creators of uh, Sacred Quest understood this because the show kind of is about how like temporary gimmicks are not a solution to this problem. And it's about setting the, um, creating enough local initiatives with the local people uh, that will actually help the town like not decay. I've, and this is kind of what PA Works seems to have done in, uh, in real life too. Um, so I think this is a fairly positive example of this idea, but it's also like not how it happens everywhere else. I mean, if you guys went to Japan, would there be a location you would want to see because you've seen it in an anime? Yes. Yeah. There's a, there's a particular shrine in Akiba that I would like to go to because it's in Akihabara Deep. There's also a really nice park. <laughs> that's park not an anime, Ian. That's a Sentai show. Uh, it's not a Sentai show, it's a J-drama. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, the park that I would like to go to has been demolished uh, since the show was made. Mm. I want to go to the ruins of Tokyo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there is actually an exhibition happening right now about the destruction of Tokyo in yeah, Japan. I, know. I, want to go, I want to go to Yokohama and see all the flooded cities that are there right now. <laughs> Whereas for me, I wouldn't really want to go to any specific locations, but more to the general events. You see an anime like the Sapporo Snow Festival. I'd definitely like to see that. Before global warming ruins it for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think we've exhausted that topic and it's time to render our verdict. And so the question needs to be asked, how many boxes of Chubacabra Manju would we purchase out of five? Then he can go first, I guess. <laughs> so... I think I'd buy three boxes. I was fine with this show. I enjoyed it while I was watching it. I enjoyed one piece of music specifically. The comedy worked well enough. There was one sequence that I really liked. But once I was done, I didn't really spend my time thinking, man, I really need to go and watch more of Sakura Quest. Whereas I'm still thinking, man, I really should go and watch more of Noin. So I think Ace 3 is a very fair verdict for this show. How about you, Fian? My favorite boy, Fian. <laughs> How about you, Ian? We're settling somewhere in the 2.53 territory. 
I think it might be closer to a three than a two point five, but ah, screw it. I'll just say two point five. That's 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 that. It's it's a dead average show. I give it the dead average score. <laughs> Someone else can have the half a Manju box that I didn't that I leave unfinished. <laughs> well, I'm not sure if I like Manju, but I feel a, a little bit more positively about this than you two do. But maybe that's just because I've seen the whole thing. Even though I think the whole thing was. Uh, uh, fine and didn't uh, really didn't work quite as well as the character study as I wanted it to but uh, oh well, it got its main team across okay um, but these episodes were decent but not amazing and even though I would have given this a three and a half I don't think it was as good as annoying <sighs> so I will give it three boxes Okay, so yeah, if anybody wants uh, the other half of a box, uh, send us an email. What <laughs> <laughs> a box that we don't have. Okay, Danny, hit, hit us with your additional factoids. Well, my piece of trivia this week isn't really all that great, but I did find it interesting to note that PA Works made all the cutscenes for the Professor Layton video games and the movie of it. But that's not really a trivia piece related to the anime. Does, do either of you have something? Well, talking about anime tourism, uh, a weird example of this is, um, do you remember Kinero Mosaic? No. The, the gimmick there is that the uh, transfer student is English. And uh, in the show is featured a little cottage in Wiltshire. And <laughs> now that has become a mecca for fans of the show. Oh, that's cool. They were very welcomed by the um, the woman who runs the place because it's a bed and breakfast. I don't know how the locals feel about it. Because they're uh, English, I feel like it will either be annoyed indifference or be like, oh, that's quaint. <laughs> or they'll be really racist, but uh, anyway. Yeah. So yeah, what will we, what will, I, I don't know why that sentence is always so hard for me to say. What will we be watching next week? <laughs> It's, it's an awkward thing. What will we be watching? <laughs> so yeah, Ian, what will we be watching Ian? next week? Well, we'll be watching whatever Freya picks. Freya. <laughs> we'll just skip Freya. Fuck you, Freya. Ian, what well, will we be watching next week? No. Um, so Freya, what will we be watching next week? Uh, what we will be watching is uh, the film Miss Hokusai. Hmm. Something I've not heard of. All right. Well, presumably, I mean, presumably you've heard at least of Hokusai. The famous artist. No. The wave over Kanagawa. Those the great wave. wave. Cultured swine. Yeah. It's yeah. Like literally the most famous piece of Japanese art in the world. Google great wave, Benny. Oh, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> We are the Anime Research Group, a weekly podcast coming out every Thursday, more or less. If you'd like to tell us what you thought of the episode or suggest something for future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at research underscore anime or drop us an email at researchanime.gmail.com.